tonight, um, making another appearance after some 14, no, only a, a mere 23, 23, years. 23 years, Winston S. Churchill. Um, when you were last here, you were just on the book, really pointing up the threat from the Soviet Union and talking about the necessity for a strong and militant position of opposition to their purposes in the world. Yes, indeed. And it was just the moment uh, that, on the one hand, the American electorate in their wisdom had elected Mr. Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. and the British electorate had elected Mrs. Thatcher. Was and that was to transform the whole state of the world and the whole balance of power, because during the 70s, the Soviets had got us on the run. And we turned the tables on them in the 80s, and that led to the collapse of what Mr. Reagan famously and correctly dubbed the evil empire. You were in those days a member of parliament. Indeed, you served from some, also some 23 years or 27, 27 years. 20, no. About two life sentences. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, there's a kind of a parallel between what you were doing in commons at the time and what your grandfather was doing in commons in the decade of the 30s, arguing against uh, a great threat and trying to mobilize his colleagues to take that threat seriously and get ready yeah. in terms of military force. Yeah, but I mean, the fortunate thing was that we had electorates that had the good sense to put in place governments who were resolute. And it was thanks to that resolution that was demonstrated and enacted throughout the decade of the 80s that we uh, brought about the downfall of the evil empire. And uh, I mean, just at the moment when we thought that we were going to move into smoother waters, uh, we have rearing its ugly head the uh, Islamic fundamentalism. One might perhaps edit and correct your grandfather when he speaks of entering after this terrible conflict is over into sunlit uplands. It may be that there are no sunlit uplands. It could be. I mean, the, every time you crest one hill, one mountain range, there's another ahead of you. It's always some other damn thing. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, uh, something about your relationship to Winston Churchill. There's a lovely picture at the front of this fine new book, which is titled, I should say, instantly, Never Give In. That's a direct quotation from one of his speeches. I think a speech he gives to the boys at Harrow. That's right. And never give in the best of Winston Churchill's speeches, selected by his grandson, Winston S. Churchill. That's published in this country by Hyperion. Hyperion. Uh, that frontispiece picture is the, the author and his editor. That is to say, Churchill in the garden at number 10, and a nice-looking little boy walking along with him. Age 12, that was Age me. Age 12. And with my father as well. And... Uh, uh, it was during my grandfather's second premiership mm -hmm. in the early 50s. In fact, it was coronation year, 1953, exactly half a century ago. What sort of relationship did you have with him? Wonderful. Uh, I was so lucky, uh, A, being the only son of an only son, uh, B, dare I say it, because of the fact that my parents divorced when I was four and a half years old, uh, that's a terrible thing to say, but in fact, the flip side of that was that I spent a lot of value time with my grandparents, both my mother's parents, the Digbys in Dorset, and my Churchill grandparents in Kent, at Chartwell. And 
so every vacation I spent time, particularly the summer vacation, I spent a lot of time uh, with them, and particularly with my grandfather. And, uh, you know, if anybody had asked me when I was a boy of six or seven, what does your grandfather do? I would have said he's there for my personal hmm. enjoyment and entertainment. I had no conception that he was member of parliament, leader of the opposition, planning to come back as prime minister one day, meanwhile burning the midnight oil until 3 a.m. every night, uh, writing his war memoirs, his six-volume war memoirs, and then after that, his four-volume history of the English-speaking peoples. One thing that comes to you about Churchill, and of course I was well aware of this before looking at this volume, is he was a man of prodigious energy. It's amazing how much he accomplished, even as a writer. Quite incredible. Uh, as a writer, he uh, wrote 30 volumes of history and biography, which is a lifetime's output for a full-time historian. Exactly. As an artist, he completed over 500 canvases, some of a remarkable quality. And that, again, is a lifetime's output for most full-time artists. And when not so occupied, he managed to save the free world. And then I thought this would be a walkover uh, doing this best of Winston Churchill's speeches. I had no idea of the scale of his speech-making. And, of course, every speech he wrote himself, uh, not for him an army of speechwriters. You quote... Uh, one of his secretaries, I forget the name, who told you that the ratio of preparation to the actual speech performance was about one hour per one minute. For the important set-piece wartime speeches, yes. So a 30-minute speech uh, in 1940 or 41, he would devote uh, 30 hours, and quite phenomenal. And, of course, that is why they're so damn good. That is why they stand the test of time. The 30 hours were devoted to the writing of the speeches, yes. probably the rewriting, but also rehearsing the delivery, I gather. Both, both were, were very, very important. But when I came to this job, I had no conception of the scale of it. And I mean, this is not a slim volume. This is over 500 pages, but this represents only 5% of the whole. And so if I were to publish in the same format the complete speeches of Winston Churchill. This would be just one of 20 volumes. It's astounding. We're going to listen to excerpts from a number of the speeches, and we begin with one from 1939, 8-8-39. Uh, it's titled Hush Over Europe. Give us the background on that one. Well, that is f less than four weeks before the outbreak of the Second mm -hmm. World War, and uh, it is his last throw of trying to appeal to the Congress and people of the United States to stand four square with the democracies in Europe. And it is just before uh, Hitler sends his tanks into Poland. At this point, he's back at the Admiralty, is that right? Yes. Um, no, he, he came back on uh, the day before... Uh, the war broke oh. out. So he's still speaking only as a member of parliament? Yes. Uh, and this is a speech on the radio to the United States? Uh, yes. Holiday time. 
Ladies and gentlemen, holiday time, my friends across the Atlantic. Holiday time, when the summer calls the toilers of all countries for an all too brief spell from the offices and mills and stiff routine of daily life and breadwinning and sends them to seek, if not rest, at least change in new surroundings to return refreshed and keep the myriad wheels of civilized society on the move. Let me look back. Let me see. How did we spend our summer holidays 25 years ago? Why, these were the very days when the German advance guards were breaking into Belgium and trampling down the Belgian people on their march towards Paris. These were the days, the very days, when Prussian militarism, once, to quote its own phrase, hacking its way through the small, weak, neighbor country, whose neutrality and independence they had sworn not merely to respect, but to defend. But perhaps we are wrong. Perhaps our memory deceives us. Uh, Dr. Goebbels, you've heard of him. Dr. Goebbels and his propaganda machine have their own version of what happened 25 years ago. To hear them talk, you would suppose that it was Belgium that invaded Germany. There they were, these peaceful Prussians, gathering in their harvests, when this wicked Belgium, set on by England and the Jews, fell upon them, and would no doubt have taken Berlin, if uh, Corporal Adolf Hitler had not come to the rescue and turned the tables. Uh, indeed, their tale goes further. After four years of war by land and sea, when, according to them, Germany was about to win an overwhelming victory, the Jews got at them again, this time from the rear. Armed with President Wilson's 14 points, they stabbed the German armies in the back, so we are told, and induced them to ask for an armistice, and even persuaded them, in an unguarded moment, to sign a paper saying that it was they and not the Belgians who had been the ones to begin the war. Such is history, ladies and gentlemen. Such is history as it is taught in topsy-turvism. And now it is holiday again. And where are we now? Or, as you sometimes ask in the United States, where do we go from here? There is a hush all over Europe. Nay, all over the world. A hush broken only by the dull thud of Japanese bombs falling on Chinese cities and Chinese universities or near British and American ships in the Far East. Alas, it is the hush of suspense. And in many lands, it is the hush of fear. Listen, I think I hear something. It is the tramp of armies crunching the gravel of parade grounds, splashing through rain-soaked fields. It is the tramp of two million German soldiers and more than a million Italians going on maneuvers. Oh, yes, only on maneuvers. Of course, it's only maneuvers. <laughs>
just like last year. After all, the dictators must train their soldiers. They could scarcely do that. And that, in common prudence, when, as we all know, the Danes, the Dutch, the Swiss, the Albanians, and, of course, the Jews, may leap out upon them at any moment and rob them of their living space and make them sign another paper to say who began it. Besides, these German and Italian armies <coughs> may have another work of liberation to perform. It was only last year that they liberated Austria from the horrors of self-government. It was only in March of this year that they freed the Czechoslovak Republic from the misery of independent existence. It's only two years ago that Signor Mussolini gave the ancient kingdom of Abyssinia its Magna Carta. It's only two months ago that little Albania got its writ of habeas corpus. And Mussolini sent in his Bill of Rights for King Sarge to pay. Why, even at this moment, while I'm speaking, the mountaineers of the Tyrol, a German speaking population who have dwelt in their beautiful valleys for a thousand years are being liberated, that is to say, uprooted from the land they love, from the soil which Andreas Hofer died to defend. No wonder the armies are tramping on when there is so much liberation to be done. And no wonder there is a hush among all the neighbors of Germany and Italy while they are wondering which one of them is going to be Liberated. How truly fascinating. I've never heard that one before. Neither have I. We just dug it up today off the internet. I've read it, but I have read heard it. it. I had neither read it nor heard it. But what I note instantly is his uh, utterly skilled and uh, uh, more than expert use of the art of irony. He doesn't always speak in ironic terms, but yes. here all of it is saying the opposite of what we all know to be yes, true. absolutely. <laughs> the, something else one notes as well is the wonderful periodic structure of every sentence and the fine use of words. He's quoted as saying someplace the shorter word is always preferable to the longer one, and particularly the old shorter word. That's true, and the Anglo-Saxon is against the, yeah. the Latin, and uh, uh, he believed in short sentences, too. And people always say how direct and comprehensible mm -hmm. his use of the language is. He says that he mastered the art of the, British, uh, of the English sentence because he was not terribly brilliant at school, and so he was held back and uh, got... Well, for three years, he, he, he was at the bottom of the school, and he had yes. to repeat the same year's studies for three years, and he refused point-blank to learn either Latin or Greek. The brighter boys went on, he says, to learn Latin and Greek, but he was stuck with English. Yes, and so he became a master of the English it's language, wonderful. master of the English sentence. We will talk more, of course, about Churchill as a man, about his career, and listen to a good deal more by way of recorded speeches, all to continue after we pause for these words. And we return to conversation with Winston S. Churchill. The S is for Spencer, one assumes. That's right. Which was, As in Diana. Yes, and uh, of course, on one side, 
uh, Churchill is descended from the Spencer family. That's right. Never Give In is the title of the book, The Best of Winston Churchill's Speeches. That's published in this country by Hyperion. Well, we've got another speech coming up, not by Winston Churchill, but by his predecessor uh, as prime minister, namely Neville Chamberlain, the man of the umbrellas. And uh, this is uh, directly after Britain has declared war. Chamberlain has tried to hold war off. The deal at Munich was supposed to guarantee, quote, in his terms, peace in our time. Yes, and he came back brandishing a paper and Famous, said, this yeah. paper bears the, sign the signatures of Herr Hitler and mm -hmm. myself, and uh, this guarantees peace in our time. And that was um, how long before the, break, the out official outbreak of the war? That was uh, about 15 months before. Yeah. Now, Hitler goes forward and invades Poland, and Britain and France have already given treaty-based assurances that if Poland is invaded, they will go to war. That's right. Even though we weren't equipped for it or prepared yeah. for it, nonetheless, we'd given our word and we honored our word. And here is uh, Chamberlain explaining that to the British nation. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. You can imagine what a bitter blow it is to me that all my long struggle to win peace has failed. Yet I cannot believe that there is anything more or anything different that I could have done and that would have been more successful. Up to the very last, it would have been quite possible to have arranged a peaceful and honorable settlement between Germany and Poland. But Hitler would not have it. He had evidently made up his mind to attack Poland, whatever happened. And although he now says he put forward reasonable proposals which were rejected by the Poles, that is not a true statement. The proposals were never shown to the Poles, nor to us. And though they were announced in the German broadcast on Thursday night, Hitler did not wait to hear comments on them, but ordered his troops to cross the Polish frontier the next morning. His action shows convincingly that there is no chance of expecting that this man will ever give up his practice of using force to gain his will. He can only be stopped by force. And we and France are today, in fulfillment of our obligations, going to the aid of Poland, who is so bravely resisting this wicked and unprovoked attack upon her people. We have a clear conscience. We have done all that any country could do to establish peace. 
with a situation in which no word given by Germany's ruler could be trusted and no people or country could feel itself safe had become intolerable. And now that we have resolved to finish it, I know that you will all play your part with calmness and courage. Neville Chamberlain does sound rather depressed <laughs> or rather exhausted. He had reason to be because all his efforts over four or five long years to woo Hitler, to persuade Hitler, uh, to move on to a path of peace uh, proved all in vain. The main voice in opposition to that effort to appease uh, and to assuage uh, the Nazis was, of course, that of your grandfather. Who stood with him in that position in Parliament? Or was he essentially a voice crying in the wilderness? He was very much a voice crying in the wilderness. Uh, by the time of the Munich Agreement, the infamous Munich Agreement, when uh, Britain and France threw the people of Czechoslovakia to the Nazi wolves, uh, he could count on the fingers of one hand uh, his parliamentary friends and allies. <clears throat> These are the, his years in the wilderness when he's in no governmental position other than occupying his seat as a member of parliament. And he's generally disdained, laughed at, or considered uh, no longer of our time and of our place, I gather. That's right. Uh, that he was regarded as uh, a, a tiny minority who uh, I mean, the worst was the suggestion that he was a warmonger yeah. for the fact that he was warning of the dangers. And, uh, I mean, when it came to the Munich Agreement uh, in October 1938, uh, everybody was cheering uh, Mr. Chamberlain, the Prime Minister, to the echo. And uh, my grandfather, in his speech to the House of Commons, said, I will begin by saying the most unpopular and the most unwelcome thing. I will begin by saying what everybody would like to ignore or forget, but that must nevertheless be stated, namely that we have sustained a total and unmitigated defeat and that France has suffered even more than we have. Viscountess Astor, nonsense. <laughs> she was the only woman mm. prime minister at the time, the only American, uh, sorry, woman member of parliament. Yeah. She was mm. the only... Uh, American member of parliament, of the British parliament. And she was a leader of the so-called, is it Cliveden or Cliveden? The Cliveden the set. The Cliveden set who were very pro-Nazi. Cultivating the Nazis, inviting the foreign secretary Ribbentrop uh, to their home. And of course, it, it was just at this time that she uh, assailed my grandfather in a fury, probably just after this speech, uh, saying, Winston, if I... Uh, we, if you were my husband, I should put poison in your coffee. Uh, my dear, replied my grandfather, <laughs> if I had the misfortune to be your husband, I should drink it. Yes. <laughs> he has another great put-down line for another a female member of Parliament who gave him some trouble. Uh, is this story, in fact, true, or is it apocryphal? Well, that oh, was... Uh, I, I think it was Bessie Braddock, who was not one. a that's very beautiful lady. Yes. <laughs> and she... Uh, allegedly uh, said, uh, Prime Minister, you're drunk, or Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. And he said, be that as it may, 
you are ugly and tomorrow I shall be sober. Yes. <laughs> but that doesn't really ring true to me because he was always a very gallant man. Uh-huh. We haven't said anything in our conversation here, and there are some listeners who are young enough and not as well-schooled in history as one would hope that they might be, who may not know very much about the background of Churchill. After the war is declared, he shortly is drawn into the cabinet and made first Lord of the Admiralty for the second time. In fact, uh, the day before uh, war was declared, he was summoned back to the Admiralty, and the signal was flashed to the Mm. British fleet. Winston is back. And for the second time in quarter of a century, he had the task of preparing Mm -hmm. what was still the largest fleet in the world to do battle against Germany. He was the first Lord of the Admiralty during the First World War until the ill-fated Dardanelles campaign, which was essentially his conception. And when that failed, he was in some disgrace, or felt himself to be, resigned uh, from the cabinet and went off to the front lines in France. Yes, to fight in the trenches in Flanders as as a soldier in the line. And that wasn't the first time he faced bullets coming at him, not by a long shot. Oh, not by a long shot. I mean, in when he was a, uh, an, a young officer in the days of Queen Victoria at the end of the 19th century, he was on the northwest frontier of India, what today we would call uh, the borders of Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost certainly uh, where bin Laden, if he still be alive, is lurking in the Moman and Tirar valleys. And that's where my grandfather was 105 years ago as a young cavalry officer. And uh, then off to uh, the Sudan, where he took part in the the last great cavalry charge of history uh, with the 21st Lancers and uh, also in South Africa, where he was taken prisoner by the Boers, from which he escaped. escape, which first commended him to the general attention of the British public. Absolutely. That was the basis on which he was able yeah. to launch his political career, because he had no money. And if you don't have money, you, you need fame in those days to, to launch your career. He's got a wonderful quote from someplace. I can't find it. I've got a sheaf of quotes here, but I can't locate it. But you will probably know it word for word. Which he says, there's nothing quite so exhilarating as to be shot out. Without effect. Without effect. Yeah. That was on his 21st birthday when he was in Cuba. Uh, there happened to be no sort of British war going on anywhere in the world, uh, but the Cubans had a, a war going on. Uh, the Cubans were revolting against their Spanish masters, and my grandfather had gone with a friend to uh, observe this war and they stopped on a route march uh, with the Spanish troops and he was just bringing to his mouth uh, a leg of a chicken when suddenly a bullet snapped between him uh, and the chicken and (laughs) that prompted that remark. Chris, he followed wars. Your father, Randolph Churchill, followed wars. You have followed wars as a journalist. Yeah, I covered about eight as a war correspondent. Uh, Yemen, Congo, Angola, Borneo, Vietnam, 1966, uh, Middle East, Six-Day War, 1967, uh, Nigeria, Biafra, Civil War, uh, 69, and then the 73 Yom Kippur War. And indeed, you and your father did a book on the Six-Day War, I believe. That's right, yeah. Which is generally still considered to be 
The authoritative volume. Yes, yes, indeed. My God, that was 35 years ago. Yes, well, <laughs> time, time does move. Uh, let us go back in time, though, to the days uh, shortly after the declaration of war uh, that we just heard Chamberlain giving. Well, we go to, in fact, to April 1940. That's when the Germans break through in May, the, May 40. Well, I'm, uh, I was going to say that w their invasion of of Belgium and France begins in late April, does it not? No, no. 10th of May. 10th, 10th of, May? of May 1940, the very same day that the British people turn to my grandfather uh, and he becomes prime minister for the first time. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, the, s the speech that he makes, the first speech as prime minister mm -hmm. on the 13th of, uh, of May is, uh, I think, the single most important speech and of we his are, life. This is a speech to the House of Commons. Yes. Uh, by the way, a small matter, but an interesting one. We don't have actual recordings of the speech as delivered in Commons, do we? No, because there were no recording facilities. Indeed, a recording was specifically disallowed until uh, some uh, 20, 30 years ago. So he re-reads this on some other occasion. Yes. When uh, was this, in fact, recorded? I would guess a few hours after the event. So it's still the, fresh. The BBC would have carted him off to a studio no. to record it while it was still fresh in his mind. And here is that speech by Winston Churchill. Mr. Speaker, on Friday evening last, I received His Majesty's commission to form a new administration. It was the evident wish and will of Parliament and the nation that this should be conceived on the broadest possible basis and that it should include all parties, both those who supported the late government and also the parties of the opposition. I have completed the most important part of this task. A war cabinet had been formed of five members, representing with the liberal opposition the unity of the nation. The three party leaders have agreed to serve either in the war cabinet or in high executive office. The three fighting services have been filled. It was necessary that this should be done in one single day on account of the extreme urgency and rigor of events. A number of other key positions were filled yesterday, and I am submitting a further list to his majesty tonight. I hope to complete the appointment of the principal ministers during tomorrow. The appointment of the other ministers usually takes a little longer, but I trust that when Parliament meets again, this part of my task will be completed, and that the administration will be complete in all respects. Sir, I considered it in the public interest to suggest that the House should be summoned to meet today. Mr. Speaker, I agreed and took the necessary steps in accordance with the powers conferred upon him by the resolution of the House. At the end of the proceedings today, the adjournment of the House will be proposed until Tuesday, the 21st of May, with, of course, provision for earlier meeting if need be. The business to be considered during that week will be notified to members at the earliest opportunity. I now invite the House 
by the resolution which stands in my name to record its approval of the steps taken and to declare its confidence in the new government. Sir, to form an administration of this scale and complexity is a serious undertaking in itself. But it must be remembered that we are in the preliminary stage of one of the greatest battles in history. That we are in action at many points in Norway and in Holland. That we have to be prepared in the Mediterranean. That the air battle is continuous and that many preparations have to be made here at home. In this crisis, I hope I may be pardoned if I do not address the House at any length today. I hope that any of my friends and colleagues or former colleagues who are affected by the political reconstruction will make all allowances for any lack of ceremony with which it has been necessary to act. I would say to the House, as I said to those who have joined the government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. We have before us an ordeal of the most grievous kind. We have before us many, many long months of struggle and of suffering. You ask what is our policy? I will say it is to wage war by sea, land and air with all our might, with all the strength that God can give us. To wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark and lamentable catalogue of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But without victory there is no survival. Let that be realized. No survival for the British Empire. No survival for all that the British Empire stood for. No survival for the urge and impulse of the ages that mankind will move forward towards its goal. But I take up my task with buoyancy and hope. I feel sure that our cause will not be suffered to fail among men. At this time, I feel entitled to claim the aidable. And I say, come then, let us go forward together with our united strength. What do we know about the immediate reaction of Parliament, and for that matter, of the British public to that speech? Well, it was quite amazing. Uh, I mean, in the British Parliament, you do not applaud. Uh, the most uh, you do is to sort of wave your order paper in approval. And well, do, the do, members do, stood yeah. and publicly applauded. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, unprecedented. And uh, the real importance of that speech was that after 10 years of drift and disarmament and appeasement, when most of Europe had fallen already under the Nazi jackboot, and even friends of Britain abroad were thinking it's only going to be a matter of a few weeks before the British too run up the white flag of, flag of surrender, that here they hear this strong, powerful voice uh, saying that we go on. But even at this point, there was a counter-movement within British government 
uh, led by Lord Halifax, which really was urging to negotiate, using Mussolini perhaps as the middleman, to negotiate with Hitler and get a settlement. We need to talk about that. Yes. And we will proceed to do so right after we pause for these words. I thought before we turn to Halifax uh, and the opposition to Churchill, which we didn't know much about until recently when it was revealed in a fine book by John Lukács, uh, but I think first we might hear, if only briefly, the voice of the enemy. Why not? And here is Adolf Hitler. The Gegner werfen uns Nationalsozialisten vor und mir insbesondere, dass wir intolerante, unverträgliche Menschen sein. Wir wollten, sagen Sie, mit anderen Parteien nicht arbeiten. Und ein starker Politiker verschärft das noch, indem er sagt, die Nationalsozialisten sind überhaupt nicht deutsch, denn sie lehnen die Arbeit mit anderen Parteien ab. Also ist es typisch deutsch, 30 Parteien zu besitzen. Ich habe hier eine zu erwähnen, die Herren haben ganz recht. Wir sind intolerant. Ich habe mir ein Ziel gestellt, nämlich die 30 Parteien aus Deutschland hinauszufegen. Sie verbinden uns mit ihresgleichen selbst. Wir haben ein Ziel uns gewählt und verfechten es von Nahes, rücksichtslos, bis ins Grab hinein. You can see that Charlie Chaplin had a lot of material that he could draw upon. Well, of course, it's hilarious stuff, as long as you weren't one of his many oh, yeah. victims. That's an early speech. That's before he actually comes to power. It says they're getting ready for the big Reichstag election in which they get the plurality in the Reichstag. And he's saying there um, that uh, I'm criticized for being intolerant of there being so many other parties. I am intolerant. There are 30 parties. That's ridiculous. We'll get rid of all of them when we come to power, which he did, of course shortly thereafter. One of the most moving moments of my life was when I uh, was at London University uh, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Mm. And after my speech, a lady came up to me, a very beautiful lady of a certain age, and she said, Mr. Churchill, I have to tell you, as a girl of 12, I was in the Warsaw Ghetto. We were all herded in there. Initially, we thought for our safety. We didn't know what the Nazis' intentions were. Then they started taking people from there, and we didn't know where they were being sent. But she said, whenever there was a broadcast by your grandfather on the BBC, my family and all our friends would gather around our little radio. And she said, I couldn't understand English, but I knew that if I and my family would have any prayer of surviving this war. It depended on that one strong, unseen voice. And she added poignantly, we were all taken to Bergen-Belsen, <coughs> and I was the only member of my family to survive. And she tells you that the man who freed me, the British officer who freed me, And uh, indeed, here. she said, uh, the man who's standing beside me today was the man who liberated me from Bergen-Belsen, who's today my husband. It was it's a, a very moving moment. It's a wonderful story. Uh, I mentioned earlier Lord Halifax, 
uh, and the people around him. That was opposition within the British cabinet, was it not? Oh, yes, indeed. And Even know, after Churchill gave the, gives the speech that we just heard. Yes, and he had become prime minister on the 10th of May, and throughout the next three weeks until the end of the month, there is a battle royal going on behind closed doors where Halifax and uh, almost half the cabinet are saying, look, we've, we've got no hope of winning this war. We've got to seek terms from Hitler. Why don't we do so through Mussolini? And my grandfather realized that if one once embarked on that slippery slope, there would be no holding point. And uh, the climax came when he had the master idea of summoning the uh, junior members of the government who were not in the cabinet and they were much more uh, gung-ho for the war and one of them uh, Lord Hailsham told me that they came out of that meeting in the cabinet room being resolved to die in their own blood rather than surrender and that was the the turning point. After that point, <coughs> my, my grandfather had uh, very li large authority for the direction of the war. And Halifax has challenged him so strongly uh, on the inner circle of the cabinet, is shipped off to Washington as ambassador. That's right, yes. Couldn't do much harm there. No. That was the view. Yes, but, uh, and much less harm than if he'd merely been uh, put out to grass back home where mm -hmm. he could have stirred up opposition from within. It's rather like sending um, Edward VIII, after he has left the throne, off to Bermuda. Yes. Getting him out of the way. <laughs> uh, we, By the way, uh, I've got to stop just a moment for some commercials. Is it true that your grandfather wrote the abdication speech for Edward VIII? He certainly had quite an input. Uh, whether he actually wrote it, that I'm not sure. It is sometimes asserted that, or attributed no. that he did. But he was close to he was King indeed, Edward. And it didn't do him any good politically. I mean, some have said, ah, this was political opportunism on yeah. his part. It, it was purely that he had known uh, Edward VIII as a young man. As the Prince of Wales. As the yeah. Prince of Wales and had befriended him. And, uh, you know, he believed uh, a friend uh, in need is a mm -hmm. friend indeed. And uh, he also uh, you know, did not share the view of the then government and the Archbishop of Canterbury, that it was so terrible to marry a divorcee or even an American. We are <laughs> late for some commercials. We'll take care of those. And then we pick up with Churchill uh, speaking again to the country and to the world after finally the Halifax revolt has been put aside. Uh, we continue with Winston S. Churchill, the editor of the new book, Never Give In, the best of Winston Churchill's speeches. And we return to Winston S. Churchill, a member of parliament for some 27 years. You left parliament only a few years ago. 97. In yeah. 97. Uh, and the editor uh, of the very valuable new book and very heartening, uh, cheering book because the presence of greatness always somehow elevates you. And as you read Winston Churchill's speeches, you know that you are in the presence of greatness. The title of the book is Never Give In, the best of Winston Churchill's speeches, uh, published by Hyperion in this country. And we come to what may have been in some ways the worst or the most challenging time of test 
that he faced. Uh, the defeat in France, the evacuation of the British Army from Dunkirk, that has happened when he... Now, is he going on the air here, or is he again talking to Parliament? Uh, this is uh, in Parliament um, on the 4th of June, 1940. The, all, so he's been Prime Minister for about not even weeks. four weeks. Yeah. All of the British evacuees, uh, the military evacuees, are now back at home, yes. is that right? So, uh, but France is about, falling. About a third of a million men had been brought off safely. Uh, uh, Paris has not yet been fully taken, but the Germans are on the road to Paris. And Within no two and a half weeks, France was to surrender. And in the face of all of that, Churchill rises in the house, and here's what he says. We are told, sir, that Herr Hitler has a plan for invading the British Isles. This has often been thought of before. When Napoleon laid Boulogne for a year with his flat bottom boats and his grand army, he was told by someone, there are bitter weeds in England. There are certainly a great many more of them since the British Expeditionary Force returned. Sir, I have myself full confidence that if all do their duty, if nothing is neglected, and if the best arrangements are made, as they are being made, we shall prove ourselves once more able to defend our island home, to ride out the storm of war, and to outlive the menace of tyranny, if necessary for years, if necessary alone. At any rate, that is what we are going to try to do. That is the result of his Majesty's government, every man of them. That is the will of Parliament and the nation. The British Empire and the French Republic, linked together in their cause and in their need, will defend to the death their native soil, aiding each other like good comrades to the utmost of their strength. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it was subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time, the new world with all its power and might steps forth to the rescue and the liberation of the old. The new world in all its power and might steps forth to rescue the old world. That's the reference to the United States. And that was his hope and fervent prayer. He had a gut feeling that come what may, we could somehow soldier on in our island and not surrender. But he was sufficient of a realist to know that we couldn't single-handedly liberate Western Europe and destroy Nazi Germany. That that would require the full-hearted involvement of the United States of America. What are he and Roosevelt saying to one another during those dark days? Uh, 
they were beginning to get close, but there was a major fly in the ointment, uh, Ambassador Joseph P. Kennedy, uh, who was not my grandfather's favorite. He was sending back cables saying, uh, Britain is finished. Britain is finished. Uh, these guys are not worth supporting because uh, they're bound to bite the dust. And nothing could have been more unhelpful at that time. We needed all the help that we could get. And eventually, uh, we get 50 uh, old destroyers, which the United States Navy has no requirement for anymore. And uh, that was in spite of uh, Papa Joe Kennedy. And when, of course, Jill Wynant takes the place of Papa Joe, my grandfather's welcome to him is very full-hearted. Mm. The son of Ambassador Kennedy writes a book a little bit later on titled While England Slept, I believe, in which essentially he takes the position of your grandfather and says England should have been far more uh, committed to opposing Hitler early on or the war might not have happened the way it did. And he, of course, goes on to be the president of the United States a bit later on. That's, that's, that's right. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yes, yes, indeed. The lovely man. Curious turn, isn't it? Yes. Between father and son. Well, there was always a great empathy between uh, President Kennedy and my father and uh, a huge admiration that he had for my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And hence, under his presidency, the supreme accolade of the conferring of honorary U.S. citizenship on my grandfather. Which, um, and your grandfather writes a speech, but he's too feeble to come over and deliver it. It's delivered to Congress by your father. It's delivered, not to Congress, it's delivered in the Rose Garden of the White House. Yeah. I accompanied my father. You were there. I'll never forget that day, a wonderfully proud day. Mm. Um, the president was there, uh, Jackie was there, and uh, it was then that... Uh, the president uh, made famous the words of uh, that wonderful uh, CBS broadcaster from the wartime era. Um, oh, escapes me. Uh, who uh, was? Oh the, yes, it's Edward Morrow. Who yeah, says Edward R. Morrow. Chamberlain. And, and he was the one who said that Churchill mobilized the English language <laughs> and sent it into and battle. And sent it into battle, yeah. Morrow. He was yeah. a wonderfully courageous man. And uh, he, uh, he was uh, the American that my grandfather most liked and admired in those early years of the he war. He sat there on the rooftops of London yes. broadcasting the, uh, the Battle of London exactly. to this country. Exactly. There are some famous clips which are available. In fact... We've played them, I think, on this program once yeah. uh, or, or another time. Um, I want to go forward to another speech, and I speak here to the people in the booth. Uh, uh, let's go to uh, Never Give In, number 10 on our list. And while they're setting that up, you should be explaining this. To begin with, we note that there's a correspondence between the title of that speech and the title of your book. Yes, indeed. Uh, the reason I chose Never Give In as the title of the book is, to me, that sums up in three words uh, my grandf everything my grandfather stood for. And this particular speech was uh, in November uh, 1941. Uh, we had been at war more than two years, and we had been standing alone 
for mm -hmm. 16 months. And my grandfather goes back to his alma mater, to Harrow School. The place where they uh, kept him in, in grade for two or three years. That's right. And uh, let, wouldn't let him study Latin or Greek. And uh, well, he chose not to. And this is literally 10 days before Pearl Harbor, uh, which was to change everything. And he goes back to his alma mater and he says, never give in, never, 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 he except to convictions of honor or good sense. He's talking to the boys of the school. Yes. Here he is. Almost a year has passed since I came down here at your headmaster's kind invitation in order to cheer myself and cheer the hearts of a few of my friends by singing some of our own songs. The 10 months that have passed have seen very terrible catastrophic events in the world, ups and downs, misfortunes, but can anyone sitting here this afternoon, this October afternoon, not feel deeply thankful for what has happened in the time that has passed and for the very great improvement in the position of our country and of our home. Why, when I was here last time, we were quite alone, desperately alone, and we had been so for five or six months. We were poorly armed. We are not poorly armed today. But then we were very poorly armed. We had the unmeasured menace of the enemy and their air attack still beating upon us. And you yourselves had had experience of this attack. And I expect you are beginning to feel impatient that there has been this long lull with nothing particular turning up. You cannot tell from appearances how things will go. Sometimes imagination makes things out far worse than they are. Yet without imagination, not much can be done. Those people who are imaginative see many more dangers than perhaps exist. Certainly many more than will happen. But then they must also pray to be given that extra courage to carry this far-reaching imagination. But for everyone, surely, what we have gone through in this period, I'm addressing myself to the school, surely in this period of 10 months, this is the lesson. Never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago, and to many countries it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished and liquidated. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across our slate. But instead, our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching, no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say we can be sure that we have only to persevere to conquer. You sang here a verse of a school song. You sang that extra verse written in my honor which I was very greatly complimented by and which you have repeated today. 
But there is one word in it I want to alter. I wanted to do so last year, but I did not venture to. It is the line, not less we praise in darker days. I've obtained the headmaster's permission to alter darker to sterner. Not less we praise in sterner days. Do not let us speak of darker days. Let us speak rather of sterner days. These are not dark days. These are great days. The greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us according to our station, to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race. What a beautiful speech. I've not heard that one before. Oh, that, that's a wonderful one. Uh, these are not dark days. These are great days. The yeah. greatest our nation has ever lived. You don't have any memories. You were about a child of about one, I guess, at that time. I don't have memories of that, uh, but I have memories of the war. And, I mean, at that stage, I was being bundled down uh, several nights a week uh, from the sixth-floor apartment uh, above Grosvenor Square. Uh, of course, the elevators weren't working because there were so many power cuts at the time. Uh, whenever the sirens went, I was raced down into the street and down into the public shelter beneath the building. Well, you would have been about five years old on VE Day. I, At I the end of the war, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do have many vivid memories of, of the war, but from the standpoint of a child. By the way, where did you go to school? Did you go to Harrow as well? No, I went to the other place. I went to Eton. You went to Eton? Yeah, but my children went to Harrow. Ah, uh -huh. <laughs> I thought all of the Churchills were Harrovians. Yeah? No. Now, my grandfather was the exception who proved the rule. I see. Um, we are late once again, as uh, inevitably we have been, for commercials. We'll pause briefly for those. And then comes December 7th, and that has tremendous consequence for the direction that the war takes from Absolutely. there on. And we have Churchill just a few days after December 7th. In fact, it's on December 26th appearing before the American Congress. He wasted no time. <laughs> and we'll hear some of that right after this. Now, time grows a little short. Uh, in our conversation with Winston S. Churchill, as we listen to and talk about the speeches of his grandfather, Winston Churchill, as Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Uh, but we must take an excerpt, at least, from his speech to the American Congress. As you pointed out before, he hustled over very quickly after December 7th. Oh, you bet. He jumped a battleship right away to that get across good. the Atlantic. That was the way to do it. Yes. By battleship rather than by Zigzagging airplane. at high speed. No, no mm -hmm. convoy or anything like that. That was for the, the slower craft. That was for the merchant uh, fleet. But uh, the way it was thought to do it then was zigzagging mm -hmm. and at top speed, about 33, 34 knots. And here he is then before Congress, a joint session on December 26th, 1941. Members of the Senate and of the House of Representatives, I feel greatly honored that you should have invited me to enter the United States Senate chamber and address the representatives of both branches of Congress. The fact that my American forebears 
have for so many generations played their part in the life of the United States, and that here I am, an Englishman, welcomed in your midst, makes this experience one of the most moving and thrilling in my life, which is already long and has not been entirely uneventful. I, I wish, I wish indeed that my mother, whose uh, memory I cherish across the veil of years, could have been here to see. By the way, uh, I cannot help but reflecting that if my father had been uh, American and my mother British, <coughs> instead of the other way around, I might have got here on my own. <laughs> now, the United States have been attacked and set upon by three most powerfully armed dictator states, the greatest military power in Europe, the greatest military power in Asia, Japan, Germany, and Italy have all declared and are making war upon you. And a quarrel is open which can only end in their overthrow or yours. We're blending out before the end of that speech, of course. In fact, it probably was a speech that ran for about half an hour, as I remember. But it is so interesting. He makes reference there to Germany and um, Italy having declared war on the United States. In fact, quite apart from the assault on Pearl Harbor, one might very well play the counterfactual historical game and ask, what if uh, Hitler and Mussolini had been smart enough not to declare war upon the United States, not to honor what was supposedly their obligation in the, three, uh, the tripartite pact with Japan? That's a very intriguing question, and I don't know the answer. Um, but uh, as soon as my grandfather learned of the attack on the United States Navy at Pearl Harbor, he went to Parliament to declare war on Japan. And this was sending a message to FDR saying, look, we have declared war against your enemy mm -hmm. and uh, hoping that he might do the same against Nazi Germany. But uh, Hitler, to everyone's amazement, got the shot in first. Fortunately for Roosevelt, fortunately for the unfolding well, course of history. fortunately because... for my grandfather, fortunately for Britain, because yeah. it, what it did mean was not only that the United States was then committed to war against Germany, but my grandfather was able to persuade the United States to put the European war on the front burner mm -hmm. and the Japanese war on the back burner. It could be argued that if we hadn't had the declaration of war from Hitler and Mussolini against us before we then declared war against them, that if they hadn't taken that step, uh, Roosevelt would have had rather a hard time extending the war against the Japanese to also include the Europeans, because the isolationist movement, which was in fact centered in this very city of Chicago uh, as a national movement, uh, it was still quite strong, and it was still well represented in Congress itself. But with the declaration of war against this, the die is cast. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so thank God for Adolf. Uh, 
and the Japanese from our point of view. <laughs> Thank God for the stupidities of our enemies. Yes. <laughs> um, of course, the greatest stupidity of all, obviously, the point's been made again and again, hasn't it, is that uh, was the invasion by Germany of the Soviet Union. Yes. Uh, as my grandfather remarked, uh, he must have been very loosely educated. We all learned about the fate of uh, the French army mm -hmm. uh, under Napoleon uh, and the idea of going to war against Russia and getting stuck there in midwinter. Uh, that proved totally disastrous. Because your grandfather had said lots of negative things about the Soviet Union and indeed about his leader in the years before the war. He's got a speech actually while the war is already on and Finland is also fighting against a Soviet invasion yeah. in which he commends the brave Finns uh, and talks about the absolutely demoralized and inadequate military force of the Soviet Union, which isn't quite what he says about the Soviet Union two years later. But the second that uh, the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, he makes a speech uh, proclaiming an alliance yeah. with the Russians. And when one of his private secretaries said, but Prime Minister, it was you who tried to strangle Bolshevism in its cradle at the end of the First World War. And uh, uh, my grandfather apparently replied, if Hitler invaded hell, I would at least go to the House of Commons and make favorable reference to the devil. Yes. Um, well, wartime partners, to be sure, strange bedfellows. And it fell, and the, that alliance fell apart very soon. In fact, it was your grandfather who sent up an early warning about the expansionist plans of the Soviet Union. Yes, indeed, after uh, the, the war. famous speech at Fulton at yeah. Westminster College. We have that here, and we'll listen to a portion of it. Right now, once again, it's time to pause for some quick commercial messages. And before we return to Winston Churchill talking about uh, the prior Winston Churchill, it is time to invite telephone calls. We're just now opening the lines. The number, of course, is 591-7200-312. If you're calling long distance, that's the area code. And if you'd rather reach us via email, the email is now open as well, and that is extension 720, one word, at Tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com. Get your calls and or email in. We hope to get to you shortly. But we come now to um, the, um, the VE Day speech, uh, and we're going to, rather than play it, you've got it right there as one of the things, of course, that's yes, featured indeed. in your book. And it's a longer speech than we will hear right now, but read what you take to be some of the crucial paragraphs. Well, uh, it's, the, the relevant part is really quite brief. Uh, this is the 8th of May, 1945. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at headquarters, General Yodel, the representative of the German High Command, and Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Force and simultaneously to the, um, to the Soviet High Command. The German war is therefore at an end. After years of intense preparation, Germany hurled herself on Poland at the beginning of the war in September 39 
and in pursuance of our guarantee to Poland and in agreement with the French Republic, Great Britain and France um, and the Commonwealth of Nations declared war upon this foul aggression. After gallant France had been struck down, we from this island and from our united empire maintained the struggle single-handedly for a whole year until we were joined by the military might of Soviet Russia and later by the overwhelmingly overwhelming power and resources of the United States of America. Finally, almost the whole world was combined against the evildoers who are now prostrate before us. Our gratitude to our splendid allies goes forth from all our hearts in this island and throughout the British Empire. We may now allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing, but let us not forget for a moment the toil and efforts that lie ahead. Japan, with all her treachery and greed, remains unsubdued. The injury she has inflicted on Great Britain, the United States and other countries, and her detestable cruelties call for justice and retribution. We must now ask, um, we must now devote all our strength and resources to the completion of our task, both at home and abroad. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom. God save the king. What a high moment. And undoubtedly with some special exhilaration, he goes off to Potsdam, suburb of Berlin, to meet with uh, Harry Truman, who has succeeded Roosevelt, and Marshal Stalin. And they're having another great summit meeting. And during that meeting, there's an election to be held in England. Yes, that just at the moment when hostilities are ended in Europe, hostilities resume on the domestic political front in Britain. And to the amazement of many, my grandfather was voted out of office in the very hour of victory. Yeah. Uh, he was very hurt by that. I would think so. Uh, and of course, there were no opinion polls worth the name at that stage. So there was very little advance warning. And so it came uh, as a terrible shock to him. His successor was Clement Attlee, of whom um, someone once said, well, you must, we must acknowledge he's a very modest man, to which your grandfather responded. He, he has much to be modest about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it must have been, it must have thrown, we know that he had some tendency towards depression. It must have thrown him into a true depressive funk. Well, my grandmother remarked, Clementine, remarked, uh, my dear, perhaps it's a blessing in disguise. Mm. It's certainly very effectively disguised. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he did come back. But, I mean, my grandmother was right. Uh, yeah. My grandfather, by the end of the war, was close to being a burnt-out case. I mean, he had become prime minister age 65, qualified, as he put it, to draw the old-age pension. And he had uh, put every ounce of his fiber into defeating Nazi Germany in that five years and he needed a rest. He needed a rest but as he took that rest he became all the more aware of a new threat looming on the horizon from the east and less than a year after VE Day he is in um, Fulton, Missouri Yes. invited I think by or at least uh, escorted by Harry Truman Yes. Uh, I mean, that, that's why he went out into the boondocks of Missouri, yeah. uh, was because he knew he would be speaking at the feet of the new president of the United States. At Fulton College. Is it Fulton College? West no, Westminster, Westminster College. College Fulton, in Missouri. Fulton, Missouri. The famous Iron Curtain speech. And here is a crucial portion of it. From Stettin, 
in the Baltic, through Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere. And all our subjects, in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control from, uh, from Moscow. Police governments... A touch of that famous being... speech, time being rather short. What are your further thoughts about that speech? And did it, in fact, mobilize the Western world to early on get down to uh, serious anti-Soviet activity? Well, of course, having been uh, virtually the first in the field to warn of the Nazi danger, seven years before the outbreak of war and 12 weeks before uh, Hitler had become Chancellor of Germany, uh, he was also uh, the first to warn that our erstwhile gallant ally, the Russian, had become our mortal enemy, uh, with the Red Army at the heart of Europe dominating and uh, invading, effectively, now, the nations of Eastern and Central Europe. Had they really become our indomitable enemy, some revisionist historians of the Cold War, not these days, but 20 years ago, were writing books arguing that it was the militancy of Churchill and others who went along with him, which in fact became a self-fulfilling prophecy that pushed the Russians, based upon their fear of Western hostility towards them, into further expansion and into the kind of policy that we associate with Well, Stalin. if you can believe that, you can believe anything. That <laughs> is a load of baloney. You uh, wrote a book uh, putting down that load of baloney some over 20 years ago, the last time we talked, yes, in fact. Yes. No, no, the, the, there was no question of that. The, uh, the Russians came with ill intent towards the nations of Eastern and Central Europe. They came in the guise of liberators, but they came in reality as enslavers. And uh, it was all part of Stalin's plan to put in place the uh, communist governments, uh, which would then establish police states, which would rule uh, those countries as uh, uh, the tools of the Kremlin. And so they did. They had success for a while, but of course that sort of government, that sort of totalitarian, totalitarian imposition upon arrested people, arrested peoples, plural, inevitably will be undone by those people sooner or later. Well, it lasted 45 years, yeah. that particular nightmare. I mean, after five years of Nazi occupation, they had to endure 45 years of Soviet occupation. And they tried. Uh, the Hungarians tried, the Czechs yes. tried, and each time there was a brutal repression. The Red Army was sent in, there was blood on the streets, and uh, it wasn't until, uh, finally, Gorbachev sent the signal mm -hmm. to the uh, police state dictators of Eastern Europe, you're on your own, boys, that you can no longer count on the Soviet Red Army to keep you sunny side up. 
that was the defining moment when uh, we effectively had the Soviet Empire uh, on the skids. Probably 10 or 12 years after the Soviet invasion of Hungary, after the brief uh, turn towards uh, reform, at least in Hungary, I spent a few weeks in Budapest. And the f new friends I made there were eager to tell you not only stories about that, but to point out uh, um, shattered fragments in the buildings, holes, bu bullet holes, and little mortar holes all around town. They didn't repair them. They wanted all the world, I think, to see yeah. that they had been under siege and that, and of course, then they were uh, back under control, tight control, by a communist government. I'm talking about the year 1970 or thereabouts. But uh, it, it burned in them. And sooner or later, of course, they got their freedom. And I would think that what mobilized the need for freedom and the demand for freedom in the European world, maybe worldwide, were a number of things and a number of people, a number of images, but perhaps foremost among them, uh, your grandfather and the way in which he defended freedom and mobilized the language in the service of But also freedom. it's in, in the, the nature of the human being. It's in the human spirit to want mm. to be free. But it was only once the Soviet empire had become weakened and yeah. uh, could no longer stand the pace vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States that yeah. their, their moment came. But you're pointing to the human resource that uh, it's as if given in the poem by Robert Frost, something there is that doesn't love a wall that sends the groundswell under it. And this, the totalitarian walls came down sooner or later because that runs against the nature of human aspiration. But it was only because we, the West, and Stood above fast. all the United States, yeah. were strong. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been the same story as in the 1930s, this leading to a horrible war. Mrs. Thatcher, who's been on this program twice, Lady Thatcher, uh, has said more than once here, as I'm sure she said it elsewhere, that uh, the single key greatest factor was Ronnie Reagan, as she calls him, Ronnie Reagan going forward with the, um, uh, with the Star Wars initiative. I'm sure that's the case. This was the final straw that broke the Kremlin camel's yeah. back. And I'm sure that when the history is uh, written of this period, that will be seen to be the case. It's time to let our listeners in on all of this, and we will do so right after we pause for these words. And we'll go to the phones in just a moment. I do understand that you're doing a, um, uh, a speech followed by a luncheon at the Union League Club tomorrow? Yes, Union League Club of Chicago, yes, 11.30 until... Uh, 1.30 p.m. Mm -hmm. Book signing as well is yes, part of indeed. the deal. Yeah. And if people want to get to that, they should contact uh, that particular store in Winnetka. What is the name of that store? Somebody knows. The Bookstall of Winnetka, exactly. <laughs> uh, our uh, Maggie, our producer, has whispered that in my ear. Let's go quickly to the phones. 591-7200, you are on the air. Good evening. Hi, Milton. Mr. Churchill, great show. Thank you, sir. Good evening. I just have a reply to your earlier question regarding why the Germans surprisingly declared war on America after uh, December 7th. Mm -hmm. And Sir Winston Churchill shed some light on that in his History of the Second World War, which I'm reading right now. In the third volume, The Grand Alliance, on page 615, he speaks of how the Japanese ambassador to Berlin 
tells of his visit to Ribbentrop, and uh, he mentions how the Japanese ambassador called on the foreign minister of Ribbentrop and told him that it was Japan's wish to have Germany and Italy issue formal declarations of war on America at once. And at the time, Hitler was completely surprised by the Japanese action, and then Churchill goes on to say that at that point he ordered donuts or uh, yeah donuts to start attacking in the German Navy and then started attacking America even before uh, they declared war. This was three days before the official declaration of war by Germany. So it was kind of an interesting light that he sheds on that subject. Yes, indeed. My own personal view was that perhaps the reason Hitler did that, it was hoping that Japan would open up a second front on Russia's eastern border to hold down some Russian divisions. And I think that's what he was trying to do in uh, bringing Japan into the war against Russia. By it, that was a bit of a miscalculation, wasn't it? It, it sure was. It brought the United States into the war against Germany. It sure was. Too Thank late. God. If I could just, could I make two more comments I about fear not, history? sir, because we're so late and there are other people waiting. But I thank you very much for your excellent contribution. Let me read you an email. Um, I had heard that Winston Churchill died a saddened man. This saddens me, given his courage and all the good that he did. Can you report any joys in his last days which may console those of us who hold him still in high regard? He didn't die a saddened man at all. And, uh, uh, I mean, I recall that certainly until the last year of his life, he had a lot of joy and uh, uh, happiness out of his life. It was only uh, the closing months when uh, the infirmities, the physical infirmities, began to impinge on him. I, he lived I, on until 91 or thereabouts? He was 90, 90, 90. years old. Yeah. But uh, I recall when he was 88, uh, spending uh, some time with him in the summer in the south of France. And after lunch, he liked to be driven up onto the golf course high above Monte Carlo. And uh, one day I, I went with him and his personal protection officer from Scotland Yard, Sergeant Murray. And we get up there and uh, it's very hot. And so we open the car doors and he sits in the car. I'm chatting to Sergeant Murray. And suddenly he turns to me and says, what did Murray say? I said, Sergeant Murray says, it's very dry around here. Hmm, there isn't a pub for miles around. <laughs> he knew exactly the wavelength that Sergeant uh, Murray's mind would be working on. Wonderful. To another caller, hello, you're on the air. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Dr. Rosenberg, please never retire. You are irreplaceable. The kind of you, sir. Go ahead. My question is, Britain declared war against Germany because Germany had just invaded Poland. But the Soviet Union invaded Poland 16 days after the Germans did. Why didn't Britain declare war against the Soviet Union? Because we had enough on our plate at that time with Nazi Germany, I think is the answer. And we didn't want to sort of compound the, the number of enemies that we had fighting us. There's a fair answer. We thank you, sir, for the call. Thank you. Another email. Uh, I would be interested in your guest's opinion of the book Churchill, uh, based upon the Lord Moran diaries. Uh, Lord Moran was his physician. Was his personal physician, and uh, uh, it was certainly felt, uh, not just by my family, but by the medical profession, that it was uh, 
unacceptable that a doctor should uh, write uh, and make money out of retailing stories of his uh, personal uh, patient. That's where the image of Churchill as depressive uh, gets yeah, a good deal of attention, the black see, dog but, business and but so th on. This is where it gets out of all proportion. I mean, what the hell do you talk to your doctor about if it isn't your, your medical problems? Uh, you know, my grandfather brought him along to, uh, to Moscow, to Yalta, uh, to these different places, but I felt rather sorry for him because, I mean, he brought his golf clubs with him. He had no real role unless the prime minister got very ill. And so he would periodically uh, feed him the odd titbit. But basically, the only conversations that they had was uh, about his health. And to say a guy's a hypochondriac for talking to his doctor about his health, I mean, forget it. What, what else does one talk to one's doctor about? A point well made. <laughs> Quite well made. Uh, quickly back to the phones and to this caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Good evening. It's been said, I believe it was at Yalta, that uh, uh, Roosevelt being in ill health was going to give everything away to Stalin, whatever Stalin wanted, and it was just Winston Churchill who held the line. Could you shed some light on this, please? Well, Winston Churchill wasn't in a strong position to hold the line. He, he would have liked to have seen the line held, but I think the decisive uh, factor was uh, the announcement by Roosevelt right at the start of the, uh, the conference that uh, come what may, the second that the war in Europe was over, he was going to bring the boys home. And that was music to Stalin's ears because he had no intention of demobilizing the Red Army. And he knew that the Red Army would be at the heart of Europe and all-powerful. And this uh, was my grandfather's biggest worry. Uh, and he was appalled at the idea that the United States would make a precipitate withdrawal, which would make all of Western Europe, uh, as well as Eastern and Central Europe, be uh, open to Soviet invasion. Thank you. We thank you, sir. Time is very short. Let's talk a bit about the other Winston Churchill, namely yourself. Uh, you've had uh, a very active career in British politics as a member of parliament for so many years, but you've also maintained a full journalistic career, and you've done about five or six books. What are you up to these days, apart from having put this book together and appearing in this country right now talking about this book? Well, I do some lecturing around this country. I, uh, as you say, uh, I'm promoting this particular book, and uh, I will probably have another book on the stocks, but uh, it's early stages yet. What happened to Churchill's children? Quickly to be, to be reviewed. Your father, we know, was, I think, the only son. Isn't that right? He was the only son. Uh, in many ways, enormously like his father, uh, very talented, but without the self-discipline mm -hmm. that my grandfather had that drove my grandfather forward. And uh, he died age 57, um, the same day that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. There were three Churchill daughters, is that right? That's right. Uh, one of whom survives, my aunt, uh, Mary Soames, Lady Soames. Mm -hmm. And there was uh, Sarah, the actress, and uh, Diana, who was uh, married to Duncan Sands, who was a senior minister in my grandfather's government. 
How many grandchildren did he have in all? While he was still alive, that is. Well, I, I would guess uh, that we were probably uh, at least a dozen strong. One has a sense that you may have been the favorite. Uh, I, I would hate to be the one to say that, but I mean, uh, it, it was just the way the cookie crumbled, that being the only son of the only son and mm -hmm. my parents being divorced, I spent uh, a lot of time with my grandfather, and uh, for that I shall be eternally grateful. There's a line, I think it's from Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, take him all in all he was a man, we shall not look upon his like again. Does it apply here, I, do you think? I think very much so, certainly not in my lifetime. And again, if you play counterfactuals, you know, if he had somehow, if the bullet had connected with him down in Cuba or earlier in South Africa or what have you, if it had not been a Churchill in our lives, who knows what direction the world would have taken? Well. You may say I'm biased, and of course I am, but I sincerely believe that had it not been for Winston Churchill, that Britain would not have fought Hitler in the summer of 1940. We would have run up the white flag of surrender. It would have been dressed up as a peace agreement, but at the end of the day, it would have had the same effect. We'd have had to surrender the Royal Navy, the Royal Air Force. Uh, Hitler would have gone east with all his might to defeat the Soviet Union and would then have come back to Britain to establish uh, Nazi concentration and death camps in England's green and pleasant and, land. And what a world this would be. And we'd all be speaking German. Oh my God, what a thought. Um, it's been a great delight having you here once again, and I thank you very much for joining us. I should say a few quick words about programs to come. Tomorrow night we are talking about just war theory with Peter Temis, who has done a book on that very subject. And the next night, Thursday, we're joined by Senator Paul Simon and by Joe Morris. Joe Morris is a leading conservative in Illinois. Paul Simon is a leading liberal, and they will discuss some basic issues on which uh, liberals and conservatives tend not to agree. That's what follows. Our thanks again to Winston Churchill. Thanks to all for listening, and a cordial good night. <laughs>